0: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's
1: what she said.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. My guest today, former NFL linebacker and special teamer Keith O'Neal, who's actually a Super Bowl champ with the Indianapolis Colts, played for the Cowboys, Colts, and Giants. And since it is Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, I was so happy to have the opportunity to talk to Keith who had issues with anxiety, insomnia, and depression all of his life throughout his football career and was eventually diagnosed with bipolar disorder shortly after he retired. And he was in the Chicagoland area to to give a speech uh, in relation with his foundation, the Fourth and Forever Foundation. So I had the chance to sit down with him and talk about his football career, stigmas relating to mental health, the help he got from his coaches, Tony Dungy and Bill Parcells, and now his work with his foundation and his book. Uh, apologies for the not quite studio quality audio as we were talking in a side room before his speech, uh, but no apologies for the content. He's got a great story, and I really think you're going to enjoy it and learn something. So here's my interview with Keith O'Neill. That's what she said. So I'm happy to welcome in former NFL linebacker Keith O'Neill, and we're going to get to the good stuff right off the top. And I'm going to force you to apologize for beating my Chicago Bears in the Super Bowl. I was there, I was cold, it was raining, I was crying. I thought we had it after that Devin Hester kickoff return, and then it all went downhill
1: from there. Well, you know, they didn't put me on the field for kickoff. I normally was a special teams player, but we had to prepare for Devin Hester, so they took me off special teams kickoff, so I kind of laughed. So it wasn't your fault? It wasn't my fault. <laughs> I wasn't on the field, so I kind of giggled to myself when he took it back for, for six. So
0: You giggled in the Super Bowl when your team went down 7 nothing.
1: Just a little,
0: just a little, a and then you were right back on the field and ready to fix things. That's right. Um, all right, so let's well, let's back up a little before you were a Super Bowl winning linebacker. Um, what kind of kid were you like? Where did you grow up, and uh, what were you into football right off from the start?
1: Absolutely, uh, I grew up in Howell, New Jersey. Uh, my father played seven years in the NFL, so naturally, uh, I was attracted to the game from a young age. Uh, I have an older brother that played Division One football at Syracuse. Uh, my brother in law played in the NFL for five years, so. You know, naturally, that's what I wanted to do. Family business. It's a family business. My father was even into coaching. So uh, from day one, um, all I wanted to do was be a football player.
0: Were you into other sports or was it just straight football from the start? Well, my father wouldn't let us
1: play until we were in eighth grade. So I was a baseball player and soccer and, you know, wrestling. um, But I always wanted to play football.
0: Your dad was Ed O'Neill, yep. and uh, what was his
1: position? He was a linebacker. A linebacker, and what about your uh, brother-in-law? Li- my, my brother-in-law was a wide receiver. Okay. And my brother Kevin was a linebacker. And That's your second. uncle? My uncle was just an uh, all-state running back in Pennsylvania.
0: Just, just oh. that. Okay. All right, so it really is the family business. So uh, you're growing up, and uh, were you into school, or were you someone who was, no, you're shaking your head already?
1: Mm-hmm. I was an average student. Um, I was... I didn't go to Cornell. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, fortunately I got a full ride scholarship, athletic scholarship to Northern Arizona University, which was, uh, you know, a great place to go to school.
0: What was your college experience like?
1: Wonderful. Um, I met my future wife there. Uh, I met some great, great, you know, friends who I'll have for the rest of my life, teammates. Um, we had a lot of Polynesians on the team, so I got to learn that culture. And, you know, I was from the East Coast, so I wasn't really familiar with, you know, southern california style or whatnot so i got a taste of that that flavor you know in in arizona so it was a cool experience a different culture how'd you meet your wife i met my wife in women in american history class it fulfilled one of my requirements for my degree and when I signed up for for the class, I thought, you know, there's going to be a lot of chicks in this class. And she <laughs> walked she walked in, and I knew from day one that that was going to be the one. Really, it was yeah. love at first sight. Love at first sight. Did she feel the same way? Or did it take a while? No, she felt the same. way. Really? Yeah. We by the third class, we're sitting right next to each other, and most people don't meet their their you know their spouses in class, you know, but. We met in class, ironically. So. Did
0: you ask her to help you with class? Of course. Of course. That's such a, that's such a cliche move. Yeah. I'm really struggling in this. Can oh, you yeah. tutor me yeah. after class?
1: She's a 4.1 student, so. Smart man. Yeah, I went with the smart, I got the smart girl. Smart
0: man. I'm going to try not to get distracted by your Super Bowl ring. Oh, okay. It's just a constant reminder of my team's failure. No, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to do my best. Um, so you're at Northern Arizona. Was it immediately clear to you that, that you were good enough that this would be something you could try to do professionally? Or were you a, more of a late bloomer?
1: I was more of a late bloomer. Um, actually, you know, I was actually had a chip on my shoulder because I didn't get to go to a Division One school. And I get to NAU, and then they, they start somebody. They bring in a junior college transfer in my junior year, and they start them in front of me. So I'm thinking, I'm never going to play in the NFL. If I can't start at NAU, then I'm never going to play in the league. But he broke his leg on the third play of the game. And I was happy, to be honest. Even you can't was, say that. Even though he was my teammate. My no, partner. you can't say that. Oops, so I got take that back. <laughs> it was my opportunity, though. It was my opportunity to go in and prove myself. Um, you know, like I said, I had a chip on my shoulder. And that's when I started playing well.
0: Right. So it's actually maybe, was there, do you think that you were working your hardest all along? Or maybe there was another gear that you just didn't know until, yeah. yeah.
1: I think there was another gear. I think, you know, getting passed over my junior year, um, kind of set a fire under my butt a little bit, and I took it to the next level.
0: So junior, senior year, you're playing well enough that you're really thinking the next level is going to be trying to get drafted. You go to uh, the Combine, I presume? I
1: didn't get invited. Not
0: invited to the Combine, and then you went uh, undrafted and ended up with the Cowboys. What was that whole, especially with the football as a family business, there's a lot of expectations, right? Once you prove to yourself and others that you're within the conversation, what was it like to kind of have those moments where you're waiting out, okay, no combine, okay, no draft. Mm-hmm. Is this going to happen for me?
1: Well, when I got signed by the Cowboys, I was surprised. Um, and a little story about the Cowboys is Parcells, it was Parcells' first year with Dallas, and it was my first year. And Coach Parcells coached my father for New England when, uh, when Parcells was a linebacker coach there. And he actually cut my father on August 26, 1980, and that was the same day I was born. So like from day one we were like I'm gonna I'm gonna make this team like I have to it's, it's in and I'm destined to make it.
0: My name is Inigo Montoya. <laughs> yeah. You cut my father <laughs>
1: prepared to die. Exactly, exactly. No, so I mean I went in there 110 percent every play. I still had that chip on my shoulder. I mean I dreamed my whole life about playing in the league like a lot of guys, but there's a lot of pressure um, living up to my father and to my brothers and. But they never put any pressure on me. My family never did. They, they just let me do my thing. So.
0: so once you make the team, was it uh, the initial, was it, okay, I'm going to be practice squad? Okay, I've made it. Okay, how am I hanging on? Or was it I've proved now and I feel, like, uh, comfortable that I'm going to stick around?
1: I felt pretty good about it. I was a pretty solid special teams player for them. I was second on the team in special teams tackles after my, my, my first year there. And then uh, my second year I played really well. I played a little bit on defense, but I was a special teams guy. You know, I was just bred that way. Right. And um, But then they switched. Unfortunately, Parcells is a 3-4 guy, and we were running a 4-3 defense. I'm more of a 4-3 linebacker. So I ended up, after my second year, getting cut uh, by, by the Cowboys. And was it on August 26th? No, it wasn't. Later <laughs> on it was, though.
0: No way. From the, that, uh, that date.
1: From when I got cut from Indy. Right. Yeah, so.
0: So let's go back to your, you've completed your first season, second on the team, special teams tackles. You're feeling pretty good about yourself. You're an NFL player. Uh, Were you married yet? No, not yet. Okay, so still dating, presumably. Did you guys have any breaks? No breaks. No breaks? Wow, impressive. Straight through. Um, And you told Bill Parcells that you wanted to retire after that first season. Why?
1: At the time, I didn't know what was going on with me mentally. I always, my whole life, I've lived with undiagnosed bipolar disorder. And growing up, we never had, like, Mental Health Awareness Month or mental health, you know, days dedicated to learning about mental illness. And so I didn't know what was going on with me. I, you know, during training camp, I went on a stint of not sleeping for five nights in a row. It was hell. And um, so anyways, I approached Coach Parcells after my first season about um, about quitting. I was in what I know now is a manic episode and he brought me into his office and he sat me down and he's like he gave me a pep talk now he's not a doctor so he didn't know exactly what he thought he just thought maybe I needed some encouragement right or maybe the pressure was getting to you yeah and he he said you know Keith I'll never forget this he said Keith everyone has a demon in their head every single one of us has a demon and it was intense talk and he says our job as football players as humans is to beat that demon and then I, so I took out, I'll never forget. I took out a sharpie and I wrote it across the top of my playbook. I wrote beat the demon. And then he looked at me and he says, get the hell out of my office. <laughs> you're not, you're not quitting. And I was like, all right. And that got me through some time, but right. I, st- I still went undiagnosed.
0: So you've experienced throughout your whole life up until this point, what were the symptoms of whatever this was that you were battling that you hadn't yet diagnosed?
1: Before I was diagnosed, uh, my symptoms were anxiety, depression, um, a really bad case of insomnia like I really had a, especially in pressure situations I can't sleep without being medicated um, you know low bouts of like I said depression and then I would have hypomanic states which means I'd be elevated moods but nothing really um, came out until I retired after after the game Like I didn't have a, a, an extreme case Right. until after football.
0: So in those moments when you were growing up, when you were in high school, when you were in college and you were suffering from whether it was the insomnia or the depression or the anxiety, did you talk to anyone about it?
1: My family, my immediate family. But they, they're the same way. We're just uneducated. Okay. Unfortunately, it's, it's hard to say that, but we didn't know. I never saw a doctor. We just thought it was who I was, my makeup, my personality. Right. Nothing. We never thought something was going on uh, as far as a mental illness.
0: Right. So you decide to stick around. Um, You are a backup linebacker. You're a a big special teams player. And then eventually they move to 3-4. You get cut. And then what's the next step? Are you immediately, you and your agent shopping yourself to other teams?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was the next morning. I was lying in bed with my wife now. And um, I got a call from the Colts. And they said they picked you up off waivers. We're... We're playing the Baltimore Ravens this week. Get on a plane and fly out to Indy. Oh, so it was mid-season. No, it was a, it was the first game. Got it.
0: Right. so, you weren't final around cuts. for training camp, and yeah, it was the first final cuts. Oh, of that next season. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so you get picked up. You you're picking up your life. I'm moving from Dallas to Indy. Yeah. And uh, what kind of contract were you signed on?
1: Just a one year. Okay. They're just continuing my contract. It was a one year deal.
0: So, how, was anything different in Indy? What was the experience yeah. like? And was there growing pains there?
1: Absolutely, I thought it'd be different, and you know, I went in there very optimistic, thinking, you know, it's not going to be like Parcells; it's going to be like Tony Dungy, laid back, you know, family man. Laid but back. Have, I don't know
0: if I think of Dungy as laid back. Oh no, he's laid back compared to Parcells. Compared to Parcells, yeah.
1: no, Dungy's Dungy's very laid back, and his practices and just the whole atmosphere was just completely different. But I realized you can't really run from who you are. I got there and I had the same problems because of the change. And I actually approached Coach Dungey this time and asked for help instead of wanting. I didn't want to. I never wanted to quit. I just wanted. I didn't know what to do, so I, I asked for Coach Dungey to get me help. And what did you tell him? I told him I hadn't been sleeping uh, for numerous days and that I had a lot of anxiety, and um, you know I couldn't get on the plane that day to play the Baltimore Ravens. We were leaving that day to play the Ravens. The
0: very first game with them. Yeah. So this is your first experience. You haven't done anything to impress him. He doesn't know anything about you. You just got there how many days before?
1: Four or five.
0: So you've been there four or five days, and your first interaction of any real is to say, I can't get on the plane, and I need help. Yeah. That's really scary.
1: Well, it's having scary thoughts. Right. Deeper than I like to talk about sometimes. Right. Um, You
0: being yourself was scarier than
1: upsetting your coach. Yeah, I didn't care. (laughs) Right. I was like, you know what, they can cut me. I'm like, I, you know, when you go four or five days without sleeping, you tell me how you feel. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's hell. It's, there's nothing, I've been through a lot of physical pain. There's nothing worse than sleep deprivation. Yeah. And I was like, I don't care. And I just, I knew that, I already knew what type of man Coach Tanji was just because of the, how he's portrayed and what you know, you know, it's a small league, people talk and. I just knew I could go to him with help, for help, and he brought in Bill Polian, he brought in the medical staff, he brought in my wife, Jill, who was sitting in the car in her pajamas, believe it or not, and we were sitting around a conference table, and I couldn't believe I was actually sitting there doing what I was doing. You know, I'm like, I'm 25 years old, NFL linebacker, special teams player, and I'm talking to these guys about my mental health condition, my mental okay. health issues.
0: Did they first try to see if it was a medical condition? Because it feels like in sports, we spend tons of resources, and there's a million outlets to find out if your toe is sprained. But we have so little in the way it's getting better in the way of resources for your mental health.
1: Well, they gave me medication. They gave me uh, anti-anxiety, which kind of helped a little bit. And they gave me some medicine for uh, insomnia. But I was undiagnosed bipolar, and it was a big difference. And I asked to see a a therapist on my own. I'm like, I need to talk to somebody because this has been going on my whole life. I'm finally getting help. And I went to see a therapist, but it kind of didn't really work out. But like you said, you know, if if I had a sprained knee or broken collarbone, you know, I'd go get MRIs and they'd take care of me and stuff. When you talk about mental health, I don't know how it is now, but it's kind of like, just like society, like it's just crickets. You know, people don't understand it and it's unfortunate.
0: It's also tough, I think. Like you said, you'd only been there a couple days. You're now sitting in there with the GM and the coach and everybody else. And to put it very bluntly, you're probably concerned that they're thinking to themselves, oh, good, we got a lemon, right? We pick up this guy. No one has given us any indication that there's anything going on. We just think we're getting a football player, and this is the first interaction. How did they, or did they, did they make you feel okay in those meetings, or did you feel concerned that you, you know, were getting off on the wrong
1: foot? No, they, they were completely cool with it. Wow. They, um, I remember uh, Bill Polian saying, because I've known the Polians for a long time. They're from Buffalo. They were with the Bills, and they know my father. And not that I've ever really had an interaction with them, but they were just like, don't worry, Keith. A lot of players go through this. You're not the first one. Just we want you back and healthy. Stay home this week. You don't have to play the Ravens. just stay on this week with Jill and and get, you know, rest, get get some sleep, get some medication. And to be honest with you, when they came back, I started playing the best football of my life. And I don't know if it was just that I finally got it out, Mm. but I started playing the best football of my life, and I was named, you know, captain of the team. And uh, then at the end of the year, they extended my contract for two more years. So it wasn't like they were... They cared about my mental health, but they didn't care about my mental health, if that makes any sense. You
0: they know? cared, but it didn't bother them. Exactly. They wanted you to be okay, yeah. and they wanted to foster your football career because obviously you were succeeding. Mm-hmm. So did it help going to the therapist?
1: Not, in this, not this, not that therapist.
0: Okay. No. There, so you but. sort of just got by, by taking some of the weight off your shoulders by being open about it and some of the medications they were giving you, but it was sort of a stopgap. Yeah. it didn't fix the problem. Absolutely not. Because you still weren't diagnosed. No. And what did that therapist tell you?
1: He, told me, he gave me an Enya CD to listen to.
0: <laughs> I used to really like Enya. Yeah, that I did too. Very, so I very, very calming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I used to like Enya until you listened to it 50 times. You <laughs> and, and you're like, I don't feel better. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Damn you, Enya. You I were know. supposed to fix I mean, everything. He, he gave me one, this one that had like butter melting on broccoli, and I was just like, I can't listen to this. What? Like, like, picture yourself as a piece of butter melting on broccoli. That was not
0: any, that was something else. I know, that was something else. Okay, this was like a thought experiment you're supposed to listen to. I was like, I can't. Oh, boy. And that's especially tough for a football player, right? Your expectation is that you're going to be a tough guy who can get through anything, no mumbo-jumbo, hippy-dippy, just go put the work in. And then someone's saying to pretend you're butter melting on broccoli, <laughs> yeah. and you're
1: like, screw this, I'm good. I'm like, this is not working for me.
0: Okay, so you end up getting a Super Bowl, yada, 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 not important. And were you a captain at the time?
1: Not for the Super Bowl. We had okay. a guy named Adam Vinatieri. Oh, he was all right. Yeah, he was okay. He's decent. Yeah.
0: Um, so uh, after the Super Bowl year, you end up getting cut
1: yeah so
0: what's the next step then
1: i sat out football for a year um
0: what was that year like
1: i went to, i moved out to arizona i got trained by one of my good friends who's a, a trainer and it was very it was great i was just won a super bowl i'm trained to get back in the league i think i have a chance i just gotta get healthy uh, my wife came out with us you know we we're just you know exploring arizona living life it was great um I had nothing to do with my mental health. It was right. all physical injuries.
0: But did your mental health, was it pretty stable yes. throughout? So yeah. was there a part of you that thought to yourself, football is the reason that I feel bad? Yeah. But yeah. you still want it back in?
1: I want it back in, absolutely. Just,
0: that's, that's what you've always done?
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: What so, did your wife say?
1: She was on board.
0: Really? Yeah. She, there wasn't a part of her that was like, I prefer you when you're just exploring <laughs> Arizona. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. No, we, she knew... As much, it was very bittersweet. You know, as much as I had a hard time with the NFL, I did enjoy it. Um, You know, there's a lot of perks that go with the NFL and everything. And I know, like, the longer I played, I get more perks. And so, um, and I I still, I like to compete. I was a a competitor. So I wanted to get back in and, you know, play for another team. And I got signed by the Giants
0: three pretty decent franchises you're going to here okay so um let's see 2008 was kevin booth there when you were on the giants boss uh no kevin booth
1: i was there very shortly
0: okay maybe maybe you guys didn't cross he's a cornell guy so any cornell guy that ends up with two rings i Uh, feel good about that (laughs) um okay so what was that experience like in new york
1: um not good i got to new york and even though i'm from jersey originally you know i was around my hometown um once I got there and started practicing, even though I put a lot of time in to uh, get back into the league, it fizzled out quickly. I was going through the same stuff, and um, I, was going to my, I had six seasons under my belt, so I just decided to retire. And
0: do you think, if you're being honest with yourself looking back, that at that point physically you were not as good of a football player, or do you think that for whatever reason it wasn't a right fit with that team? Well, why didn't it work out?
1: My mental health
0: really so it had gotten progressively worse
1: it was just the same i get there's tom coughlin he's more of a parcells type he's not tony dungy uh i I wasn't sleeping i had anxiety and you know i don't care what people think of me at this point in my life like you know suck it up whatever (laughs) like people deal with this kind of stuff you now and i would go nights and nights without sleeping i'm like you know what i got five years in i'm best i ever super bowl ring right did you try to talk to coughlin about it no i walked into, really i walked into his office and i just handed him my playbook and i told him i said i remember exactly what i said i said coach he didn't know me from adam right. this is the offseason he never saw me play i don't think uh for, for at least the giants and uh i said i know what it takes to make this team and i don't have it in me anymore and he's like, well, it sounds like you had your mind made up. And I walked out. Mm. I walked out of Giants Stadium. I was it?
0: I wonder if it hadn't been Parcells that first time or a guy like Tony Dungy the second time, if you never would have made it as long as you did. Because it certainly sounds like you had some connections with both of the first two teams via yeah. your dad, or at least they knew of your dad and you because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think if there had been a Tony Dungy type at the Giants, he might have wanted to talk you through that versus just saying – all right. See
1: ya. Maybe like a why?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, like why you know sit down, son? Why are you why are you leaving? And but there was none of that. He yeah. just he just seems to like get your mind made up. And I was like, yeah, I do, and I did. Though I don't know if he would have been able to talk me out of it at right. that point. So,
0: did you regret it afterwards at any point? Never. Really. So that was it.
1: You no, knew. It's like a switch. Yeah. Like, leaving the Super Bowl being your last game. I'm pretty happy. I was pretty happy with that.
0: Yeah. So you then are out into the real world. Yeah. What do you think is next for you? What are your plans at that point?
1: Well, my wife and I uh, had a hard time deciding where to live um, at first. So we we chose Buffalo, New York because my family lives there and uh, we're close. And then uh, we want to start. We don't have any kids yet. We want to start a family. My wife gets a job uh, as a registered nurse. She's great at what she does. And I got a job in the medical device industry. My brothers are both in it and uh, we got pregnant and my wife miscarried early in pregnancy and that was my trigger and the trigger is a term used in mental illness to like have something come out Um, mine was my bipolar and I can get into that if you want like what happened yeah Um, she was obviously grieving and I was on cloud nine I was uh, very euphoric very goal-oriented with work I was working 18 hours a day um, Coming up with crazy ideas um, Spending I mean that, Tens and tens of thousands of dollars On just stuff I never would have bought Like I never wear a watch I bought a Rolex, a tag I bought snowboards, hot tubs hmm. Just clothes for her, for us And then it, it turned dark This manic episode And they typically do if you're unmedicated And I became very delusional And um I started thinking that like uh, my phones, this is when your phone had a battery in it, I used to take the phone out, the battery out of my phone and I used to unplug my computers because I thought people were like Mm. were following me bugging my computers and technology and then I started thinking that um, the airwaves were seeping into my my head and taking over my thoughts and then I, I started hallucinating and Wow. And uh, this is bipolar. This right. This isn't being hit in the head.
0: Yeah. This Wait, is- so when you were in the euphoric stage, yeah. did your wife wonder why you could be so happy yeah. during that time? And did you and her at the time feel like maybe you were medicating through shopping, buying stuff to make yourselves feel better? Was that the way
1: you both could explain it to yourselves? She she had no control over me. I was like in my own world. Like Anytime she'd say, oh, why are you so happy? I'd be like, I'm not. I'm just working. You know, like we just lost our baby oh i know it you know this yeah this is how it is you know like there was no there was no explanation i was just 110 miles an hour gung-ho on me i, I didn't even think about the baby and i don't know if, why that was a trigger mm. maybe because i was so high and then about the pregnancy and then the, the vast emptiness i felt when we lost the baby and we lost a baby. It wasn't like I was very emotional. I wasn't like crying or anything. I was. I felt empty, and then it just sprung into this manic episode. But.
0: So then, when it gets dark, then you. There's no way of explaining that away, right? That that when you're having you know hallucinations, when you're paranoid, um, was that the real final straw for you to like going and trying to say, "I need more help than just what I've gotten before."
1: Absolutely, that's when. You know, my wife's smart. She, uh, instead of taking me to the psychiatric hospital, she got me in to see a psychiatrist and I got, um, that's what I got diagnosed with. It's called bipolar one disorder with psychotic features and I have, I was in a mixed state, which means I was both manic and depressed at the same time, which is very confusing still to me. It's just the brain does you know, crazy things. And, um, that's when I got my, my diagnosis. And then I fell into, after that, I fell into a depression for about 18 months.
0: Were you depressed because you, it, was, it was difficult to be diagnosed, to know that there was something truly wrong that would require maintenance and care and medication? and.
1: No. No? Not at first. I Were you depressed. happy
0: to be diagnosed?
1: No. I was depressed because of the, the chemicals in my brain. I had none. Or, like, the dopamine levels were... Right. I was I had true depression. Like, I would sleep for 18 hours a day. Mm. You know, they say bipolar, you're up, and then you crash, and you're down. That's what happened to me. I was up so high, and I crashed so low for... And I was... And then they... I crashed so low, and then they started... You know, I was a medication guinea pig. They just started throwing drugs at me. Like, take this, take that, try this, try that. And that had a really negative effect on me. Um, and like I said, I had to go on disability at work. You know, here I was back in my hometown, you know, Super Bowl champion, and everyone kind of knows who you are. I'm in a great industry. Where we're working with my two brothers, you know, all the orthopedic surgeons and friends and family. And I'm on disability. You know, and it was tough. It was very tough. And I've had to play with the depression too. I think.
0: Right. I mean, and also that's really hard for your wife. You're suffering from the grief of losing a child. And then now there's this sudden news of your diagnosis, which is at one point a, a blessing because you figure out what's wrong and, and you start the goal of, of treating it. But also really sad and hard to take, right, to, to understand yeah. what this means for your life. Um, and then you're depressed for over a year. Um, what was that like for her and, and also for you? Because I'm sure in that mindset, it's very hard to be anything but selfish because you're so deeply unhappy that
1: it's hard to think about others. You're absolutely right. Like, all I could think about was myself. I kind of formed into like a, a narcissist, you know, like everything was about me. Everything was, and it put so much on her. Um, she had, I mean, she had to care, care for herself, you know, her new home, new jobs, and then I was a 24 hour. She had to quit her job. She quit her job to take care of me. That's how bad it got. I couldn't function at home by myself. So yeah, I dumped a lot on her over that over that time period.
0: Were the people in your life, after they realized that there was a diagnosis and after they were became more educated, did they start to understand more? Because when I talk to people with depression, I found this incredible website. I talk about it a lot called Hyperbole and a Half. And there's a... There's a one blog post called Depression Part Two, and it's the only thing I've ever read that for someone who doesn't struggle with depression, I finally sort of got it. Yeah. It wasn't sadness so much as nothingness, right? Yeah. And did you have people in your life that were able to understand the realities of mental health? Basically, the idea that it's just like if I broke my arm, I need to be treated. It's a, it's a sickness. It's like cancer. It's like anything else, because um, there's so much stigma, and it'd be hard if the people around you didn't work to understand
1: I think it took time. Um, I think when people initially heard, because I disappeared for a while, but when people initially heard what was going on with me, I think they first thought it was football-related, and then I had to tell them, no, I have bipolar. I just think it takes time for people to understand that, like you said, mental illness is, like, you have to be treated. It's not just a weakness, you know. Um, But I went a very long time without telling anybody. I mean, nobody. Nobody just my immediate family. I wouldn't let anybody know. And that, you know, you live such a public life for so long. And then all of a sudden you're living a secret. It was really tough. It was really tough. You know?
0: Um, so 18 months of just probably the worst, probably the bottom, right? Close. Not quite close, close to the bottom. Yeah. What got you out of it?
1: A Suicide attempt. That's uh, right. we had a baby. He was 10 weeks old and, uh, it's hard to talk about. Um, I just I had enough you know and I never considered myself to be a quitter or give up but I did and I um, after my attempt I spent uh, a little bit over a week in a psychiatric hospital and then stay in a psychiatric hospital is when I really had to figure life out you know and um, you know quite a fall from grace you know three All years right. ago you we were playing in a Super Bowl and then you know, a psychiatric hospital and I got out I met mean, one of the top doctors for bipolar I a disorder in the country and um I became very proactive in finding my own wellness it took I mean it took a lot of time a lot of effort a lot of one thing that I did is I, I went public with it I just told everybody like on social I wrote a book on social media um, started a foundation and that helps me and helps others too
0: yeah absolutely When you had your... um, You have two children now, right? Yeah. When you had your first child that was sort of in the midst of that darkness... It was. What inspired you guys to want to take that step? Was there a hope that it would bring you out of it? Yeah.
1: Yeah. We were just... We were at the age of our life, and... You know, I'm not going to say it was a bad decision to have the baby then, but we both really probably weren't in the position to have it, but we did anyways. And we were hoping that it would help. And unfortunately... Um, We had some work to do
0: Yeah So now do you feel like You have your illness under control
1: Not 100% I'm learning still every day About it but I I, I, I know when I'm manic I know when I'm depressed I know when I'm somewhat normal Mm -hmm. (laughs) You define that Um, But uh, This is the best I've been since I've been diagnosed Absolutely I would say my wife feels the same way too a good spot now
0: are there triggers that you can see in advance and say this is this is going to make things harder for me I should avoid this
1: or that um yeah like stuff with the foundation like if I have a project like a big project coming up I really have to pace myself I can't get I can't immerse myself in it or Mm. I'll become manic so I do my best and my wife does my best to like kind of take things slow and and steady but I don't think I'll ever go Into the because I'm on medication, I'll never go into that delusional thinking, you know, or that really deep depression anymore. Like I like to look at it as they're hills now, and the you know, and they're not mountains.
0: Right. So, a lot of different medications to find the right one. Yeah. Um, I guess if someone was listening that was struggling with this, what would you tell them about the process of where you started and where you've ended up in terms of the diagnosis and how you handle it?
1: It's gonna get better if you just put the time in. It's it's a It's a marathon, you know. They say it all the time. It's not a sprint. I mean, it's been um, eight years since I was diagnosed, and I'm still learning every day about my illness, and I'm getting better. And people ask me, "Are you better today than yesterday?" I say, "Absolutely, every day."
0: And there's a lot of happiness in
1: your life. There's so much happiness in my life, and I can't imagine what would happen if I would have been unsuccessful. If I would have been successful with my attempt, like so many beautiful things, and I've experienced such great things since then. Um, since my um, suicide attempt. So.
0: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people who suffer with depression, and when they do decide that they want to try to attempt suicide, um, it's often because they feel like they're a burden on others, right? It will be better for everybody else if I'm gone because, uh, you know, I'm a lot to deal with or, you know, my struggles are hard on other people. What would you say to someone who feels that way, particularly now that you are sort of at least right now out of that
1: darkness? Right. You're so loved. You probably have no idea how many people love you i didn't really see through the darkness and see that side of it i was thinking about myself um but there's so many people out there that love you and that need you in their life you know especially if you have children and and parents and, and siblings especially those close to you
0: yeah i heard at one of the uh talks like the one you're doing today that you did recently there was actually someone in the room who felt comfortable at the end of it coming and telling everybody that he also has bipolar what was that like for you
1: it's, it's rewarding. I don't know how else to put it. it just because, um, you know, especially if they're young kids, because most kids don't talk about it, especially high school students. And for them, for him to have the courage to stand up in front of his classmates and, and say that he has bipolar disorder for the first time, it's, it's rewarding. And I just hope that, you know, it gets him on the right path.
0: Right. So much more support yeah. once you have people on your side. Absolutely. And I read that the NFL, um, actually, you have permanent disability, which means that you can spend your life managing your disorder, working on your foundation, writing books, helping people. Um, that's really meaningful, I think, for a lot of people to hear because the NFL does a lot of things wrong. Right. Right? Um, but in this case, because of your service in the league, you're able to not have to work, and that makes it easier for you. Was it difficult to have a steady, like, 9 to 5?
1: Yeah, I- I figured that out really quickly that uh, I couldn't work because of my illness and um, now I mean I have a foundation I wrote a book but I mean my book took me four years to write and I didn't even write I had a ghostwriter. so <laughs> I just got interviewed and my foundation's at my own pace I have two of my high school uh, buddies who are very successful helping run my foundation and I just go around the, What I really do is just go around the country and speak and tell my story. And, you know, I take my hat off to the NFL to have a benefit like total permanent disability that help people out like me that can't work. Yeah. Uh, like you said, there's a lot of negative stuff going around about head trauma and CTE, and I can say that they've really uh, made a huge positive impact in my family's life.
0: Is there a part of you that ever wonders if there's any CTE related to, to what you're suffering from?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, even though I had symptoms before um my you know my wife and my mother think that i have some cte problems, but i don't see it um it's hard to self-evaluate yourself sometimes for sure but yeah i worry about it um often
0: there's a lot more athletes of late coming out and speaking out about depression and other mental health issues in fact one of the most notable was brandon marshall yeah and when brandon marshall came out there was still a lot of skepticism People thought it was a cover for his bad acts because he was a guy who had trouble with teammates, who had issues with domestic violence and with violence in general. Um, and I think over the course of the, of the couple of years after that, when he proved himself to be under control and a good teammate, people started to understand that it was, it was a, it was a real issue. And now his, his, um, I think it's called Project Green, uh, foundation has done a lot for trying to open up conversations. Um, are you confident and are you are you hopeful that based on the fact that there's NBA players, NFL yeah. players, and all sorts of athletes talking about this, that it'll be easier for people coming up to identify sooner and get help?
1: Absolutely. That's the goal, you know, is for athletes and um, actresses like Mariah Carey just came out with a bipolar disorder. I don't know if you're aware of that. I did not. Is that very recently, huh? Them, like two, she's on the cover of People magazine. Oh wow! She came out. Uh, she's been suffering with bipolar since 2001. Um, I think you know Kevin Love. Yeah, came out.
0: Jamar Derozan. Yeah. Anxiety and depression. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like you said, the earlier you can, you know, start talking about it and get it out in the open and feel comfortable talking to your parents or peers or teachers or coaches, I, I promise you, the easier it will be on you.
0: What would you say to somebody who's suffering from any of those symptoms that you had, and they're actually afraid of a diagnosis because it becomes more real to have someone tell you that this is the thing that, that you need to deal with, and this is a journey and a path that you need to go on? What would you tell them?
1: You know, a doctor once told me it's just a label, it's just a word, it's not who you are. You know, um, even though I take my my diagnosis and I live with it, and I'm okay, I'm very okay with it because it's it is it's who I am and I've been very successful uh, in my life even though I've had it so um, it's just it's just a label
0: right you said earlier beat the demon there's that saying the devil you know right yeah. so yeah. It, at least you know what you're dealing with then you get the diagnosis and you say this is what we're dealing with this is, and then you have very smart people that know how to handle exactly. that particular demon yeah yeah
1: absolutely
0: Awesome. Well, like you said, an incredibly successful life and career despite battling all sorts of issues that other people didn't have to. I don't know how you played football without sleep. I, I mean, that's just crazy. That's awesome. um, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing awesome. that everybody does and nobody expects.
1: didn't expect the kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition.
0: Number one, what's the... Uh, natural talent that you wish you were gifted with.
1: Golf. No good. I'm terrible. <laughs> and I go to all these golf tournaments. And I'm like the guy that's missing the ball.
0: Right. Are you supposed to? Are you like the celebrity that gets invited and then you play best ball oh, and then, hometown, then you can't?
1: Yeah, hometown.
0: Song. You can't. Can't. Yeah. Can't help out. Yeah. Um, okay. Number two. What's your desert island album? You can only have one. Musical? Yeah, like you can. You're stuck one on a desert island. Name. You can only bring one album.
1: One album? Mm-hmm. Three Eleven Sound System. Nice.
0: Number three. If you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, I can't say that one. Um, who were you gonna, gonna say? Gonna say it.
1: Let's say it. Yeah. Um, if I was for a day with anybody, who would it be? I have to say. Um Barack Obama.
0: Mm. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh number four, what's the most scared you've ever been?
1: Most scared I've ever been. Man, I, had, I had nightmares. I don't know which one. Yeah. <laughs> but, um most, uh, skydiving. Really? Yes. I,
0: Scarier than when you tried to attempt suicide.
1: Oh, I thought you were trying to have fun here.
0: No, no, no. I mean, okay. it, we can
1: have fun if you want. No, okay. Yeah. Scarce I ever was in a psychiatric hospital.
0: Right. So afterwards, afterwards yeah.
1: yeah. I was still feeling, I was all, I was all messed up.
0: Yeah. Uh, number five, what would you consider your biggest failure?
1: A suicide attempt. Yeah.
0: yeah. But it was it a failure or was it? It
1: was a failure. I gave up. I could have died.
0: Right. I guess. It's hard, though, if you're fighting your own brain. Yeah. A, yeah. Um, number six, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success?
1: Another one of my fear of failure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Fear of failure.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is that different to you than com- competitiveness? Yes. Because I, I, it's interesting. Marty Smith just interviewed Tiger Woods, and he said, "I don't want to win. I want to beat you." which is like a very fine cool. line like, I like that. yeah 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 and I think some of us I'm very competitive I definitely don't want to lose I definitely love winning but I also just awesome. want to beat everyone
1: yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's awesome.
0: yeah that yeah so it's sort of fear of failure right um number seven what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve
1: uh my attention span uh-oh no, I don't have
0: one. <laughs> you don't have one at all. No, what? <laughs> no wonder the book took four years. No, 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 no. What? <laughs> uh, and number eight. What three words would you most hope that people would use
1: to describe you? Love, work ethic.
0: We'll give you that as one.
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Cornell <laughs> Positive.
0: Love work ethic positive Those are really good And then the bonus question Who would you recommend I have on the podcast To talk to you?
1: Who would I recommend Um Athlete
0: Whoever you want Except Barack Obama Because I don't think I can get him
1: okay. <laughs> Anybody Any- You're not going to use them Because you probably even know who he is Well why not His name's Tim Mahoney Okay And he's the lead guitarist From our favorite band 311
0: Tim I probably met him yeah. yeah, I was at a party in L.A. once, and uh, one of the guys from 311, what's the lead singer, Sean? Nick yeah, Nick Hexham, Um asked me if I had a new weed, and I didn't, but I saw a guy in the corner that looked like someone who would have it, so I went and asked that guy, and then that guy gave it to me, and then I gave it back to the guys at 311. Yeah. And that's my one 311 story. It's an awesome story. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, awesome. Well, well, it was great to talk to you, and good Thank luck you. with your speech today. Thanks for coming
1: out and doing it. it Everybody really needs life. Oh. And another
0: thing. This week's That's What She Read is from the New Yorker last month by Louisa Thomas. The headline is, How Far Can Becky Hammond Go in the NBA? Um, it's from a couple weeks ago, but uh relevant now, of course, as we're hearing that Becky Hammond will interview for the head coaching gig for the Milwaukee Bucks. And it's just a great, wide-ranging profile talking about her time in the WNBA, her time as an assistant with the Spurs, her love of basketball. And there's a couple things that stood out to me. Here's a quick segment. Many people speculate that Hammond will be the NBA's first female head coach, not least because she has Popovich's support. Talking to Hammond, though, I was struck by her ambivalence about her role as a pioneer. She recognizes that she's an inspiration for many young women and a target for many wary men. At the same time, she resists the attention to her gender. Quote, if you don't want a female coach, don't hire one, she said with some exasperation. But she continued, if you want to hire somebody who's qualified and will do a good job, then maybe you should consider me. Her goal is not to save the sport from itself or to prove that women can thrive in male-dominated professions. She doesn't have time to worry about taking on doubters. Quote, my motives shouldn't be to change people's minds, she said. My job is to be the best that I can be. And if that changes your mind, then great. But I can't be consumed with how you feel about me. And it's interesting because I think on Twitter, in life, on TV, there's a necessity for both women like the Becky Hammonds of the world, the Doris Burks of the world, the Jessica Mendoza's of the world that don't spend a lot of time talking about the disparity uh, between men and women in male-dominated fields. They just go out there and kick ass, and they inspire those around them, and and they prove doubters wrong by virtue of just being great. And then there's also a need for those who are willing to have open and honest conversations about the issues so that they carry people along into 2018, and that they make those issues and those problems uh, more prominent and more More discussed. And I think Becky Hammond has done herself a service in that she has been focused on the game and just the game. And and we don't hear a lot from her other than the greatness that we hear about her from others. And anybody who thinks that this interview session is some sort of, you know, publicity stunt, the Bucks interviewed her for their GM position last year. And whether or not you believe that as a third or fourth assistant for the Spurs, she's ready for a head coaching gig, it will do nothing but serve her to go through the process. That's what we always talk about with the Rooney rule in the NFL. It is a benefit to anybody who at least has the opportunity to go in and go through the process, see what they ask, see what they're looking for and figure out how to best make yourself ready for that opportunity when it does come. And I think it's a great first step. Um And from everything that we've heard, she would excel. Um And who knows if this is the time for it, but I can't imagine a better uh, – first ambassador for this an un- un- unlikely ambassador that she might be because she doesn't want to take on that role. Um It's a pretty exciting development. So props to Becky Hammond and the story again, how far can Becky Hammond go in the NBA by Louisa Thomas in the New Yorker last month. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me.